Uh, one of the things that I get particularly excited about is seeing the implications of the gospel lived out in the context of community. And that's what I want to talk about today, what I want to open the scripture about. You can think about this as kind of a vision sermon for what life together in Seven Mile Road can look like. It would be impossible for me to speak comprehensively about my vision for gospel community, but I want to focus on one simple text from the Gospel of John today, and we will see Jesus's wisdom for living life together from this simple text from John. From those of you who already lead or participate in our gospel communities, you know that there is no such thing as a perfect community. We had a wedding here uh, yesterday, and I said to the couple that marriage is the union of two sinners. Gospel community is like the union of like 12 or 13 sinners. So you know there's no such thing as the, um, there's no such thing as perfect community. But I hope that as we open this up, you'll be kind of blown away by the wisdom of Jesus and it will motivate you and inspire you. For those of you who are not yet connected to our gospel communities, we do want you involved, and we'll talk about the logistics of how that works uh, at the end of our time. But first, let's pray. Let's ask the Spirit to open up these truths of Scripture. So pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for giving us your word, and we worship you as we open it up and come underneath it now, and we ask that your spirit would challenge us and make these truths penetrate our hearts uh, so that we would obey you and be changed. We pray for that. Amen. During my early 20s, I drove a small red Ford Escort. I didn't like to refer to it as such, but it was essentially a small station wagon, and that car during that period of my life was kind of like, like a lot of people in their early 20s, that car was like my second home. I used it to drive to school, to drive to work, to drive all across New York State. Uh, I used it to visit friends. I would be driving often late at night. I was always, always in that car, and it was inevitably packed with stuff, textbooks, old food, empty coffee cups, uh, most of all, dirty laundry. And as you can imagine, my car really smelled. Interestingly, I had literally no awareness of this. I don't know if I didn't notice the scent whatsoever or if I, it just didn't bother me, but the knowledge that my station wagon stunk did not really even penetrate my brain did not cause me a second thought until the spring of 2004 when Laurel and I began dating. I was driving south on my way to pick up Laurel for one of our first dates. And suddenly and mysteriously, it was as though my olfactory powers were magically heightened. It was as though Clear air was penetrating my nostrils for the very first time. And I had a new awareness. This will not do. 
So I found a car wash. I didn't know if the lemon air freshener or the pine air freshener was better, but I got, I got both. I was, <laughs> I was confronted with an aroma that demanded a response. And once I recognized it, it was unavoidable. So I want that image or that odor, if you will, to kind of linger in your consciousness as we open up the scripture. This is John 13, 31 through 35. Matt read this a moment ago. I will read it again. John 13, 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let me set the scene in John 13. It's the week of Jesus' passion. John is describing the events leading up to his death. Jesus is sitting down for a meal with his disciples. This little gospel community of Jesus and his 12 disciples are gathered together to celebrate the Passover. John opens this whole discourse by saying, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come, meaning the hour, the the time of his crucifixion, when he knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We should take note of this as a broad statement that frames this whole passage. Jesus did not use his life to promote a political cause or to start a movement. Jesus actually formed a community, and he gave himself to these 12 weak, ridiculous, flawed Men, and he loved them. And having loved them, he loved them to the end. I'm just going to make a couple simple points from this text from John 13. And in so doing, I'm hoping that this will explain and motivate why our gospel communities work the way that they do. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved. By this, all people will know. All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So point number one, very simple. Jesus' disciples are called to love each other. That is what Jesus says. Love one another. Yet it's interesting that Jesus says that this is a new command. Now we know that his earthly ministry is drawing to a close and that these are some of Jesus' last words to his disciples. The setting is intimate. They're sharing a meal. They're in this room together. Jesus' life is running down. And of course, we know that the last words that a person would say to his followers are important. And he says, a new command I give to you. Wouldn't you expect the disciples here to lean in a little bit, thinking, we've been following this guy for three years. 
He's got a new command for us. He's going to tell something, tell us something that we have never heard. What's it going to be? And as they bend in for this crown jewel of wisdom, Jesus says, love one another. I picture the disciples kind of leaning back a little bit, saying, what? How is that a new command? That's the oldest command. Leviticus Leviticus 19 says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's new about this command? They would say, I already knew I was supposed to do that. Well, what makes it new is not the command itself, which has been around for hundreds of years. What makes the command new and what makes the fulfillment of the command possible is the life of the one who gave the command. Jesus said, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Moments later in this passage in John, Jesus will foreshadow his own pending death when he says, greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is modeling and foreshadowing and exemplifying a self-giving love, a sacrificial love, a love that far outstrips our self-interest. Remember that it was Jesus who said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus is demonstrating a love that is more than self-interest, more than love for friends and hanging out, people that, hanging out with people that we are comfortable with. He is pointing us towards a love that can only happen supernaturally. A gospel community is a community that has experienced in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus an undeserved kindness in the grace of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of that community is the remembrance and the rehearsal of the reality that Jesus Christ has come and lived among us, has died, that he has risen from the dead, and that he will return again. And that is our hope. And that is the hope that takes us out of our individualism and our comfort and our insularity and places us into a community that is formed only by the gospel. We only love each other. It's only even possible or conceivable to love each other the way that Jesus envisioned and commanded when our greatest hope is grounded in that story. When we're consumed by self, we need the community to remind us of the story that is our hope. A lot of you know uh, my, uh, my love for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, it, he said that it is, in fact, more important for us to know what God did to his people, to his son Jesus Christ, than to seek what God intends for us today. The fact that Jesus Christ died is more important than the fact that I shall die. And the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is the solid ground of my hope and the hope that I too shall be raised on the last day.
It's the community that is rooted and grounded in the hope of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that lives out of an overflowing abundance of gratitude for each other and for everyone around. And secondly, the wor- Jesus says that the world will actually know that we follow Jesus by our love for each other. People will actually see that we are followers of Christ by our love. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, the best explanation of the truth of the gospel is the life of the community that is formed by the gospel. The community shows and it tells. The community is the living, breathing explanation of the gospel. One, uh, one missional author says it like this, because the Christian community is created by the gospel, it is the place where the gospel can be seen and understood. The reign of God is a reign of life, of justice, of peace, of blessing, of freedom. But the good news that God is king is not seen as good news by a world that loves itself. Therefore, we explain and we commend the gospel through our lives and especially through our lives lived together. It is as people see our love and our unity that they recognize that Jesus is the Son of God sent by God. Here's an example to show what I mean. In three short years, it will be time for Matthew J. Cruz to start driving. I thought it would be nice to insert that into your consciousness today, Matt. And grace. And when that day comes, the truth about what it takes to safely operate a motor vehicle will need to be both verbalized and experienced. I don't think that the conversation will go like this. I don't think that the two mats will sit down on the couch at Oxford Street and look out at the car parked in the driveway, and Matt will say, You know where the key goes, right? Just give it a twist. And then you pull the lever that's kind of in the middle of the car down to where it says D. And then you push with your foot. Don't push too hard. But just push with your foot and go from there. Can you picture that? Makes sense, right? Okay, then you give them the keys. Is that how it goes? No. Not unless, not unless you want the Taurus to look worse than it already does. <laughs> but hopefully, you can find a safe and open and expansive parking lot where the truth about what is involved in safe driving can be verbalized, it can be taught, and it can also be experienced. The truth about what it takes to drive a car needs proclamation, okay? It also needs to be experienced. And in a similar way, Jesus is saying that the community that is formed by the gospel, by the love of Jesus, becomes the apologetic for the gospel, Generally speaking, when we talk about apologetics, we are talking about the reasons, the ways and the reasons that we defend the Christian faith. And these are all totally legitimate and helpful. There are wonderful, intellectually defensible reasons for why we believe Christianity, why we believe that our faith is defensible, why we believe what we do. However, in my own life, I can only think of one friend that I have 
that actually, that does not believe the gospel, that is interested in talking about those things. He doesn't believe the gospel, but he is willing to converse with me about things like the inspiration of scripture or the canonicity of the scriptural books or why the Bible is different from other so-called sacred writings and why I believe in the reality of heaven and hell. Most people are not actually asking those questions. So you could hit them right between the eyes with facts about canonicity and verbal plenary inspiration and give them numbers about how many ancient documents existed and how the Bible compares with other ancient writings and why we should see it as reliable. And those are helpful and truthful facts, and yet people that are living apart from God need more than communication of answers to questions that they are not asking. They need the living, breathing, apologetic of the gospel. They need to have the gospel community, this family of local, loving missionaries who will help them see what followers of Jesus look like. Jesus is saying, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A few years back, a professor from the state of Washington wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. He was, a, uh, was or is a sociologist, and he was interested in why religious movements gain traction. So he had studied cults like the Moonies or the Jeho- Jehovah's Witnesses, wondering how these groups attracted followers. Then he began to study the ancient Christian faith. And here was his question specifically. He said, how did a tiny and obscure messianic movement from the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization? In other words, how did this tiny community explode? How did it actually happen? Acts chapter 1 tells us that after the ascension of Jesus, there were 120 Christians. How did this tiny movement explode across the world? And as this sociologist started to create mathematical models and read ancient texts, he came to one extremely simple conclusion. He said, these people loved each other. They cared for widows. They loved women who tended to be marginalized and mistreated in the ancient world. They loved children, born and unborn. Unlike the prevailing culture, which practiced abortion and infanticide, the Christians kept their babies, and they experienced much higher fertility rates. Ultimately, they loved Jesus, and they were willing to die for him. The author said, finally, in conclusion, Christianity grew because Christians constituted an intense community able to generate what he called invincible obstinacy that yielded immense religious rewards. And the primary means of its growth was through the united and motivated efforts of the growing number of Christian believers who invited their friends, their relatives, and their neighbors to share the good news. Good news demonstrated, proclaimed in the context of community will demonstrate to the world that we follow Jesus. So how does this actually work at Seven Mile Road? By now I hope that you are asking, how do I live the gospel life at Seven Mile Road? I've already told you that uh, 
this doesn't happen perfectly in our church or anywhere else. But what we do, ha- what we do ha- have is 10 smaller communities that are scattered across this area. Um, what I would say to you today is the welcome team is, is hoping to greet you today and help, help get people plugged in who are not. But I do want to today kind of acknowledge and thank and identify the people who are currently leading gospel community and push you towards them if, they are, if you are living in geographical proximity. So, for example, if, you're, if you live in Melrose and are close to the Melrose Common, my wife Laurel and I and Glenn and Margaret Cruz would be the people for you to talk to. If you are living closer to Oak Grove, Matt and Laura McCann and Josh and Allison Shank would be the peace, people for you to talk to. If you are more in the Pine Banks area of Melrose, Matt Cruz and Grace Cruz would be the people for you to talk to. If you are in Saugus, you need to talk to Jacob and Amy and Gordon Nilsa. If you are in Medford, you need to talk to Jeremy and Melissa Davis and Braden and Stephanie Erickson. If you are in the Maplewood part of Malden, you should talk to Justin Mariah Gottlieb. If you are in Edgeworth and Malden, you should talk to Simon Waugh. If you're in downtown Beverly, you should talk to Will and Jen Kilmer. If you're further up in Beverly, you should talk to Caleb and Maggie Lilly or John and Brooke Park. Uh, in the back, we have contact info for all these folks, but they are helping lead the missional charge in our church. And if you're on the periphery of these places and nothing is close to where you live, then please talk to me because we might need to start gospel communities closer to where you do live. I'm realizing, I'm very aware that there are an endless number of reasons related to schedules, logistics, children, uh, people's concerns that would give them pause to making a commitment to them. What we do want, we would love to have those conversations, but what we do want to say is that the gospel life, the life of following Jesus, is not an individual pursuit. And we need you living a life that is shaped by the gospel in the context of community. This past week, I was able to spend a couple hours in Malden with some people in our gospel communities down there. We were grilling out together, and we had gathered to pray for a couple of our Seven Mile Road missionaries who were headed back to Africa. And after the night was over, I thought about it and I realized there is really something absurd about what is happening here. There's really something that is not logical. First of all, if you were there, the setting was, the setting was crazy. We were at the Coast. Caroline was passing food around. She was, like, she was going to have a baby in like 24 hours. Okay, Just, And she's like running around circulating cheeseburgers. There were, the house was completely overrun. I believe it was the first time that I was at a seven-mile road event, and I looked at the children and thought, they may be beginning to outnumber us. <laughs> There was one point where I was having a conversation with June, and both of our mouths were moving, and I don't think either of us heard a word that we were saying. There was no actual sound other than the, just kind of a dull, deafening roar. We had gathered to pray for these missionaries, and I thought about what we prayed for. We were praying for a couple that is returning to a nation where you can just about take your fingers and toes and count the number of believers. And they are spending their lives willingly in this place. And there's a level where you say, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense, except that our hope, our hope 
as believers, our hope as people living the gospel life together is that true authority is represented by the crucified man. We hope in Jesus. Our stories only make sense in light of his story. And there's no argument that we can make about the truth that will make sense in the plausibility structure of the average north of Bostonian. And that is why we need to make that argument by more than the presentation of facts, but by together believing and living this story. If our Christian fellowship is marked by such love, it will be the fellowship where all people recognize the unmistakable truth of the gospel. We never really will go back to the old high ground where our culture shares all the same assumptions about the authority of Scripture and the reality of Jesus Christ. Instead, the community of Jesus exists as a sign of God's grace to the world. And as we live together in love for one another, we recognize that he is sovereign. Matt read earlier saying, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. Through us, he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We will be together that unavoidable aroma for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. God will see who are being saved and who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the others, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Certainly not us. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word and your wisdom, and we ask that your spirit would empower us to obey it. We pray for that. Amen.